We'll start with the Nokar Mantra. Om Namo Arihantanam Om Namo Siddhanam Om Namo Ayadiyanam Om Namo Vajrayanam Namo Lue Savasahunam Eso Panchanamukaro Sava Pava Panasano Mangalalancha Savasim Paramam Have Mangalam Paramam Have Mangalam Barish, you have the floor. All right. Oh, boy. Thank you, uh, Tim. And uh, thanks for the opportunity uh, to present to the, to the group. Um, it's, it's actually a, a fun thing. I like doing this because it uh, gives me an opportunity to open myself up to uh, all sorts of tough questions, right? So uh, how do I, uh, Tim, how do I... Uh, upload the presentation or share the presentation on this one. I'm not used to this one. Okay, no problem. So at the bottom, you'll see an arrow uh, facing upwards inside a rectangle. Yeah, your entire screen. Okay, let's do that. Pardon me, just just a second. Okay, we'll, we'll hopefully get this thing. I can see the I can see the Google Meet screen, but I just can't see the other screens. Okay, so if you click that button, you should get a. Oh, there you go. It's it's starting for you. Let's see. Uh, all screens. Probably you may have to share one of the screen. Yeah, but I, where's the, where is, how do you get the PDF document or, uh, I, I can't see those, those screens where it's either PowerPoint or PDF. I think you have three, three monitors per. Uh, no, just one. Just one? Oh, whatever you want to um, show us, just make it a full screen and it'll show full screen for us and it'll hide uh, the Google Meet window. There you go. Is, 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 can you guys see this now? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, I can't see you guys, so... <laughs> I, so you, you, you can minimize this window on the left there and just drag it drag so you can see us on the on one side of it oh okay there you go got you hang on hang on oh. there you go all right yeah there you go all right okay thanks guys so um i'm just gonna uh, talk a little bit about uh well first the disclosures right all uh, Tim, you know, these lawyers, Tim. <laughs> uh, so all the content here is just for informational purposes. No solicitation for any uh, buying or selling of securities, which you should only do through your uh, uh, advisor. Okay. All right. So um, I was just going to 
talk a little bit about uh, financial planning and then the investment uh, manager, you know, what you should look for in an investment manager. And then the fun part, uh, basically what, when you are doing it yourself, what you probably want to uh, think about. And this is, uh, you know, I'm not a financial planner, so I don't do this actually for my client. I just got this information mostly online and I talked to a friend of mine who actually does this. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not the very sophisticated stuff that you might have already seen with your financial planner, but this is, uh, you know, elementary stuff. Uh, one of the plans that are that is out there is called the 50 30 20 or actually somebody some people also call it 50 20 30 plan and what it essentially means is that 50 percent of your uh, income monthly income uh, should go to fixed expenses uh, 30 percent should go to daily expenses you know uh, your living expenses and about 20 percent should go to retirement um, that's kind of the rough uh, uh, recommendation out there. And this is, you know, this is using an $80,000 income, which is the median income for uh, 2020, um, that, you know, 2020 that IRS has put out. So the median family income of 80000 would be distributed along these lines on a typical, you know, typical uh, financial plan. Okay. Now, Parish, can you do one thing? Yeah. Parish, can you do one thing? I'm sorry. Can you take the screen that you're talking about and drag it over the, uh, like, make it bigger over the uh, the chart that you're showing? This way. Yeah, that's fine too. Thank you. There's an Excel Excel file open. Maybe yeah. Maybe you can. There you go. How's this is better? That's perfect. Thank you. Uh -huh. My pleasure. Um, so, um, in the fixed in, in the fixed expenses side, you know, you've got your debt repayment. Now, this is all subjective. Okay, this is assuming a certain lifestyle, assuming certain um, obligations, student loans, uh, auto loans, so on and so forth. This may not be applicable to everybody, everyone. Um, but as I said, these are typical expenses that people have to think about. Um, the one thing that I wanted to really stress on is the term life insurance. Typically, it's recommended that a family has 10 times the income, 8 to 10 times the income uh, as, uh, uh, as insurance. And... Um, I mean, obviously, both, uh, both, you know, husband and wife are working. You know, we, you have to, you have to calculate it accordingly. Uh, but whatever is the income coming into the family, ten times is roughly what is recommended. And uh, again, I don't do insurance, but there are many products out there, many products out there, and most insurance agents don't want to spend time selling you term life because term life is the cheapest and they make the least money out of it. Okay. 
they usually will push uh, investment linked products. You know, you know the, the pitch is very simple. You are paying this premium. Why do you want to just let that premium go? You will get the premium back in forms of returns. Okay, if you if you go with this product. And um, in my experience, when I've analyzed those those products, uh, and I don't, I mean, I don't, as I said, this is not what I do on a daily basis, but the few times that I've analyzed, the returns are pretty um, lousy, okay? You'll get maybe 3 to 4% return um, for the extra premium that you are paying in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the excess premium that you would pay over a term life policy. Okay. So, but there, you know, if, it, if you get something in the region of six to 7% and you feel very confident about that company who's offering you the, those returns, uh, you know, it could, it could make sense. But my, my recommendation or my uh, experience has been that you should just go with term life and use the excess premium for your investment uh, purposes. Whatever, you know, whether you do it yourself or you use a manager, just give that funding to, to that person. Um, so that's term, I mean, that, but it is important. I mean, term life is important. Insurance is important. It really is important. I, 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 I firmly believe that. Taxes, housing, the housing, you know, typically they say 25 to 30 percent of your income should go into mortgages and taxes. Um, if you actually, I mean, depending on who you work with, if, if you're going to go for a mortgage, right, uh, the mortgage officer will try to say, let's keep it at 25 percent, because that's a very simple uh, sell for, for the uh, underwriting uh, officer at the bank. Um, uh, but there are some aggressive uh, mortgage brokers who can get you up to 30% also. Okay. And so now when I say 25%, <clears throat> I, I'm actually referring to debt to uh, income ratio. And so uh, if, if an aggressive mortgage broker can get you the 30%, uh, around 30%, which is great. But you don't want to stress your, you know, stretch yourself thin. I mean, you have to, as a consumer, make that decision whether you want to overextend uh, or you want to be conservative and stay in that 25% area. Okay. But typically, 25% is where uh, you want to be. Uh, daily spending is discretionary, you know, depending on lifestyle. And so that's why these are variable um, expenses. Uh, you know, depending on what your lifestyle is, you could spend 30%. And retirement, they say 20% you should put in for your retirement. So uh, those two are variable items, depending on what your comfort level is, what your flexibility is. Um, people can uh, people can choose those, uh, those allocations. The one thing that I, you know, I've, not mentioned here uh, these three things actually kids education long-term care special needs these are very specific to families um, they vary and so 
you know, whether you have two kids, three kids, how do you want to save for them? Uh, how much you want to save for them? What are the costs involved? These are all, you know, variables are different. You know, going to a private university versus a public university, uh, it, those costs are very, very different. So these, this, these kind of uh, um, uh, allocations and these kinds of uh, analysis have to be very uh, client specific. You have to sit down, see where what the actual costs involved are. I think Bhavan um, made an excellent presentation last year, I think, on uh, college funding, if I remember it correctly. He was talking about uh, about some Texas plan, Bhavan, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it was, uh, uh, we had a group presentation. I think Timur had those things. She had done that and I've mentioned a few things about the Texas promise from yeah. 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 So those are um, um, very specific to the client, to the to the investor. Long term care. Um, I have actually looked at a few of uh, these policies. Okay. And again, just like uh, just like the term life versus you know the investment related insurance products. Long-term care—at uh, least the products that I or the policies that I've looked at—really didn't look that attractive because the payouts are capped. Um, uh, the payouts are capped, and the, the 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 cap is actually quite restrictive. You you get it. You get certain amount for maybe ten years and. And then after that, it's all over. So um, my my experience has been that instead of actually putting money into long-term care, now there may be certain situations that work out great. Okay, I'm, this is not an absolute statement, but generally speaking, the money you would put in long-term care premiums, you're better off just putting it uh, on you know in investments whatever investments you want to do and the returns on those would probably you will come out ahead from you know in terms of what you would be getting as benefits from these long-term care policies that is in you know assuming you you would need them uh, because as I said there are many restrictions you know at certain ages you get them at certain uh, and the payout is of a certain level so it, all all those things have to be looked at very carefully when you make those uh, when when you make those decisions. And uh, lastly, special needs, you know, it's again very situation specific. That's why I have not included these three items in in uh, your standard plan. Okay. Any questions so far? All right. This is just a pie chart of the same, what we just like. Okay, so on the investment side, and this is what I do now, on the investment side, um, uh, my, my, uh, my wish is that all investors work with our advisor. And it's not just pitching my profession. I mean, it is, I, I truly believe that when you work with an advisor, 
you will likely make better decisions, better decisions for you and your family. Uh, if, if nothing else, then you'll at least have a sounding board for, uh, for uh, um, financial decisions that really have long-term impact. Okay. Um, that said, <clears throat> I know people, you know, don't necessarily want to work with uh, somebody that they don't trust or they, they can't get comfortable with. Um, so what I've done is kind of have a checklist of at least these attributes uh, that you should consider when you are looking uh, to to work with an advisor. All right. The first one is experience. You've got to work with somebody who's actually managed money. Okay. There's a there is a you know in the industry you've got relationship managers. Got portfolio managers, you've got wealth managers. Uh, you know, most most of them are great people. I mean, they do a great job. But what you want to do is work with somebody who's actually managed money during um, uh, downturns. So the tech bubble, the financial crisis, and now uh, coronavirus. If, if your manager has worked under these stressful conditions and you know shown you the ability to manage money well, uh, that that's a great asset. That really is. It's a uh, you know practice and theory are two different things. We all know people who have actually managed money really can add a lot of value to your investments. So that's. Uh, that would be my number one um, criteria. Number two is independent. You don't want to go with somebody who's, uh, uh, you know, I mean, they look, Merrill, Morgan Stanley, all of them will say, you know, we are, even though we are not independent, we have the flexibility to select whatever investments we want for you. And, and so, in effect, we are independent. But, um, uh, you want to go with somebody who is really independent and has a fiduciary uh, uh, responsibility. Uh, these people are typically called independent um, registered investment advisors. They are registered with State Securities Board or the FINRA or SEC, and they have they have independent character. They are not associated with banks or brokers, uh, you want to go with one, you know, with one of those uh, because they really have the ability to, to scar the landscape and get you the best uh, investment opportunities out there. Um, third one is uh, knowledge. I would say this is really, it, this is a hard one. I mean, a lot of folks, a lot of portfolio managers out there they focus on one or two things and they really do it well. They do it very well. Some are small cap managers, some are large cap managers, some do all stocks, some do fixed income, some do, you know, just MLPs, some do REITs. They're, they really are good at what they do. But what you want to go with is somebody who can do the, a broad spectrum of asset classes, just not stocks or bonds, but can actually 
understand the relationship between all these different sectors and the interplay between them. It, it really, if a manager can understand uh, the, uh, the uh, let's say, fixed income uh, sector well, then they can actually, or he can, or she can actually also make sure you are not exposed to the bad or, or the riskier areas on the stock side. So that's why the, the breadth of knowledge really is really important, very important. And lastly, accessible. You need to be able to uh, call your manager at any time and ask questions if you have one or get advice. Accessibility is really, really important. Any question on this slide? I have a comment, uh, Paresh. Yeah. Uh, one of my MBA uh, case studies were based on the one of the advisory firm for the investments, and what they found their their bonus structure was structured such a way that it was not um, uh, beneficial for their customers. It was beneficial for those. So the investment decision or the uh, suggestions they were making were based on the bonus they get, and the bonus they get were based on the funding. Uh, the like, let's say this big firm is associated with these ten firms who need funding, and uh, whoever supports whoever uh, consultant supports their agenda got the best uh, bonuses, and that's why it was all influenced. Basically, they found that it was all influenced. And customer uh, were not benefited because of this, even so-called independent advisors of this big firm. Um, so I actually agree with you, or based on that analysis, understanding, I agree with your independent, unconstrained versus compromised uh, uh, investment manager suggestion. Yeah, you know that's a great point to bring up, Mir. Uh, even uh, when you have an independent. Advisor, it doesn't necessarily, as you said, uh, is structured uh, in your favor. Having said that, you know we are talking about individual uh, managers and individual relationships. So you have a lot of control when you're you're controlling the relationship, right? Essentially, and uh, uh, when uh, there's not, you know, there is not a compensation committee involved and all that stuff. So uh, at an individual level, you have a lot of lot of control, and uh, you know hopefully you know you'll find a median where the manager is happy and you are happy. Okay, um, so as I said, you know I, I I my wish is that everybody works with an investment advisor, but I know that a lot of people like to do it themselves, and it's fun. It's uh, uh, you know, there is some some uh, rush there, uh, but so this is kind of some of the points that I I think as an individual investor uh, doing it yourself, you should you should be aware of. Uh, now, objectives again differ from from an investor to uh, uh, you know from one investor to the other. Um, some people may be doing it for retirement, for education, whatever. And some people just 
have excess liquidity and they want capital gains, they want returns, and you know they are in the market to generate returns. Whatever your needs are, and I think you have to basically understand what your objective is. And if you are if you are looking at retirement or education funding, then there is a lot of a math involved. You know, you gotta understand what your cash flows are going to be in retirement. How what your lifestyle is uh, going to be, how much uh, you need to generate from your investments, and then tailor your investment strategy accordingly. You know, if you need six percent, the strategy is going to be different than what if you need eight percent or nine percent. Uh, obviously, you know, higher the return, higher will be your risk, and the strategy has to take that into consideration as well. So that's, uh, you know, from an objective side, you have to understand where you want to go. Um, second is approach. There are different ways of uh, investing. People um, mostly on an on individual side are bottom-up investors. Bottom-up is where you basically look at only a certain stock uh, in absolute um, manner. In other words, if you're looking at, let's say, Apple or Google, you're just looking at that idea. You don't take into consideration the other factors, interest rates or this or that. Not, not, nothing else comes into play. You're looking at that, that particular idea and deciding whether you want to invest in that idea or not. Right. That is kind of a bottom-up construction process. Just, you know, on the side, a lot of these managers on mutual funds or hedge funds, they are bottom up. They have a particular mandate, so they'll they'll be you know let's say you're a large cap growth manager, you could care less as to what other factors I mean like interest rates or macro factors are doing. Your focus is very narrow. You just want to see what best ideas available in large cap growth. Okay. But if you're an individual investor and you're managing your own money, uh, you may not have that luxury. In fact, I don't think you have that luxury. You have to structure the portfolio uh, to be diversified enough to kind of weather a lot of market situations. You're not going to be able to weather all of them and even the ones that you weather, you're going to take certain hits. But if you are able to construct a portfolio that is diversified enough, uh, then you will be able to at least keep your objective in target. Otherwise, if you are going to stray too far, it's called tracking error. If you're going to stray too far, it's going to be very difficult to come back to your objectives. Very difficult. So, that's why this this bottoms up versus top down approach is really um, important consideration for individual investors. If you want to go that route, um, uh, it's riskier. That bottoms up is riskier because you are basically uh, relying on your ability to pick ideas that are going to be able to work. And, you know, last 10, 15 years have been great. People have been able to uh, 
uh, you know, put five, ten large cap growth stocks in their portfolio, and it's it's you know they've outperformed the best managers out there. Okay, uh, but you know these conditions uh, are not likely to persist. So, so uh, keep that in mind if you're a bottoms up uh, guy. Just just know. Uh, what the reason you're buying a particular idea for, it's called a thesis. If you are buying a certain idea based on certain expectations, you have to continuously evaluate whether those expectations are still intact or not, on a daily basis, actually. And if you think that the thesis is broken, you have to make that call yourself. Uh, it's a very hard thing to do, you know, Selling losers is not a not a not a skill that a lot of individual investors can can develop, at least not in the short term. It takes a while, but that really is the key: is to be able to know when to sell an idea when the thesis has broken down. Top down is you know taking into consideration monetary policy, fiscal policy, and and make constructing portfolios based on those considerations, where interest rates are heading, where government policies are heading, how much uh, you think is is coming into the, into the uh, as stimulus into the system, so on and so forth. Those considerations drive your allocations. You say, okay, interest rates are rising. We should be, uh, you know, overweight in banks. We should be overweight to discretionary, uh, so on and so forth. And those considerations drive your your selection of, of securities okay uh, not many managers actually do that um, because as I said they have a very narrow focus uh, and they they will they will basically stay in that lane but top-down uh, uh, um, you know managers typically are on the fixed income side they they take a, they give a big consideration to macro factors on the fixed income side. All right, asset allocation is the next uh, uh, checklist point. 80% of returns are determined by asset allocation. So what does that mean? You know, you've got stocks, you've got bonds, you've got real estate, uh, real estate, you've got gold, you've got commodities, all these asset classes, uh, crypto is included now, apparently. Um, so uh, you, 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 what, how much you put into each asset class basically will determine 80% of the returns. If you are in the right asset class at the right time, you'll do well regardless of the, the security selection. Security selection is basically 20% of the return. Now, this is, you know, uh, empirical data based on historical performances. And um, so the, the asset allocation process itself is really important. And if you're an individual investor doing it yourself, um, understanding macro picture then becomes really important. If rates are heading higher and you think, you know, they're heading substantially higher, you might want to lighten up on... Uh, on, on sectors and areas that are rate sensitive. Uh, 
technology has taken a massive hit recently and a lot of it has got to do with rate expectations so those those considerations uh, are really important when you're deciding on asset allocation and last one which i think is very important risk management you you know when you're managing a portfolio make sure you're managing individual risk uh, individual position risk um you know we what what i tend to do is i limit exposure to each position 3% 4% max if it's an etf maybe a little higher but regardless of your conviction in a certain idea make sure you don't over expose yourself uh, this is really key you know people get wedded to a certain idea and then they go all in and it is I've I've heard I've had people who are taking 10 15% exposure in one single stock and it just uh it's not it's not it's not good risk management correlations are important um if you're if you're you know if you if you think buying 50 stocks in a portfolio is diversification it may not actually be diversification you want positions that are that have low correlation or even inverse correlation very difficult to find these days very difficult but um you don't want ideas that move together you know if if they, if, if you have apple and if you have microsoft and if you have google they're all moving together right now these there are individual factors that move these stocks also but in a on a sector standpoint they all move together and it really doesn't provide much diversification if you load up your portfolio with with positions that um that uh, that have you know correlation uh, approaching one and lastly sell discipline very important again you need to know when to sell on the upside and downside uh you, you it's really uh, you know doesn't make any sense for you to just keep riding either upside or downside um because at some point it's your your portfolio is just going to be gyrating with 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 whatever the market is doing you you are not actively intervening and and controlling uh the risk factors all right any questions on this What is a typical commission or compensation we should expect for an investment advisor? Um so typical commission uh it's a management fee is in the 1.5 to 2% range. I would say between you know 1 to 2% depending on on the manager. If it's a big name manager you're all you're obviously going to uh, pay pay more. but you should be expecting one to two now there are different structures if you are going to invest in a hedge fund it's you know 2 plus 20 what they say is they'll take 2% fees and then they will take 20% of the the upside that they generate okay and there are high watermark uh, you know issues and all those things we won't get into that but one to 2% is a typical 
fee structure for uh, investment manager. All right. I mentioned earlier, you know, correlations are hard to find. Uh, this is uh, uh, S&P Sector Spiders uh, has a has a site where you can actually put in uh, different asset classes, different tickers, and get the correlations. See this. Uh, uh, this is a five-year date. This is five-year data. If you look at this, the only the only asset class that is giving you some diversification is treasuries. TLT is is a twenty-year treasury bond. That's the only sector which actually uh, uh, has negative um, correlation. Otherwise, everything is positive. And some, if you look at the, uh, this is S and um, P total market ETF. Everything is positive. Doesn't matter where you put it, everything is positive to, to, to stocks these days. It's just, this is very distorted. You know, it shouldn't be like that. Asset classes should be moving in, in different areas, you know, in different ways. But, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy have become so convoluted that correlations are just collapsing, going to one. Everything moves in the same direction all the time. Um, I put up some charts here. Just this is some you know some things to for you all to think about. This is a chart from uh, Bank of America. It's very interesting actually. It's kind of a uh, kind of uh, pokes holes in the myth. I mean, in the idea that real estate and all these real assets are are. are are safe and really good. Look at this. This is real uh, assets, which includes commodities, real estate, collectibles, uh, you know, gold coins and stuff like that, versus financial assets. Okay, since 1925, and financial assets have actually performed much, much better than real assets over the last hundred years much better. It does, in fact, be no period in this 100-year history where real assets have actually outperformed uh, financial assets. No period. Huge uh, revelation. Uh, you know, this idea. Now, true, these are only, these. this data is only capturing prices. It doesn't capture, it doesn't capture yield. In other words, if you have a real estate, commercial real estate property, the rent that is generated right, would be separate. But so is the dividend yield on stocks would be separate because this is just comparing prices. Uh, so to some extent, they have made the adjustment. They have kind of uh, um, adjusted for that uh, difference. But this is really, I thought it was kind of amazing to see how how vastly financial assets have outperformed real assets. The other one is uh, this uh, uh, interplay between interest rates and stocks. This is Wilshire 5000 market index on the on the right, and interest rates, 10-year yield on the left, 
Kenny Reel uh, basically topped off in, I think, 82 or 83, at around uh, 13, 14%. And it's been on a downward slide since then, uh, touching almost zero uh, in the in the uh, COVID crisis. It's come back, back up now. But um, look at the stocks during the same period. Done remarkably well. And um, one of the reasons why people are skeptical of, of uh, uh, risk assets moving forward is not sure whether this trend in rates is going to be maintained. If it does, I think uh, you'll be fine. But my sense is we've seen the best of, of, of interest rates. I think we have reached a point where it's a big inflection. What 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 the Fed has done during uh, COVID crisis is just remarkable. This is what has happened since 2000. This is just since 2000. The um, blue line is the Fed's balance sheet, and uh, uh, the other one is uh, a federal debt. Fed, the Fed's balance sheet is nine trillion. And the federal debt is now third. Past 30 trillion, we we uh, achieved that uh, milestone last week. Actually, the federal debt is now over 30 trillion, and you know this kind of uh, liquidity that has been pumped into the system. It's uh, I find it very hard to believe we are going to continue with that. Having said that, this chart is really interesting. In a rising rate environment, stocks actually tend to do well. Since 1971, the average rate, uh, average gains in stocks has been around 20% uh, during during rising rate environment. So, you know, the shaded area are the areas when rates have been rising, and the performance of uh, stocks have been actually very good during that time. But that you know, that's on in the in the backdrop. Of, of, of a secular decline in rates. So the, the uh, conclusion would be, yeah, the rates are rising, but they won't be rising for long. Okay? That's kind of the mindset uh, uh, investors have been having for the last 40, 50 years. And lastly, I wanted to just share this. Um, this is, again, different asset classes and the return and the risk of those asset classes. What I found was interesting is that REITs have the highest return, first of all, and this is a 20-year period, 96 to 2015. REITs have the highest return, although they also have the highest risk. It's uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. You think about real estate, you think stability, you think, you know, there is real asset there can touch and feel, and yet volatility, in, in other words, risk, is very high. These things move up and down quite a bit. And the other thing that I found really interesting in this one is this international stocks. Uh, 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 you know, Wall Street has been pitching international stocks as the go-to place, but look at the returns. In fact, yeah, they're less than U.S. Uh, bonds, forget about U.S. stock, they've been less than U.S. bonds, and the risk 
has been really, really high. Uh, it's been a terrible place to be, okay? At least this data period, the 20-year period that I've uh, mentioned. Yes, Mayor? Um, couple of questions. Are, what is REITs, R-E-I-T? Uh, Real Estate Investment Trusts. So these are uh, securities that um, uh, are engaged in commercial real estate, office buildings, um, uh, retail strips, malls, hospitals, data centers now. So these are uh, real estate, uh, uh, commercial real estate companies. Got it. What, what's a bit surprising for me that the risk factor of the U.S. stock and international stock is pretty close. For a, for a, is that because of the large period of duration? Because I would have expected international stock will have a higher risk. Uh, um, the risk is similar, but the returns are different. Um, you, 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 I think you bring up a good point. The risk would have been higher, uh, is what your point is, but it is not as high as U.S. I mean, it is almost similar to U.S. stocks. And uh, it's definitely I mean, it, good to see the U.S. stocks are higher. Now, one one question I have is, is this the gain of from 96 to 2015? Yes. It's not per year, right? No, these are this is compounded return. So on a yearly basis, this is the return. So every year you get 10 to 15% increase, right? Right. right? During, this, during this time period. Yeah, so from, okay, so 96 to to 15, so let's say this 20, over 20 years, you, you're getting, uh, if I take the U.S. return of, let's say, 7% or 8%, so over 20 years, you got 160% uh, uh, increase in your in your investment, right? Well, it's it's not, I see the math that you're doing, but the, 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 the figure at the end of 20 years would be, a little different than just okay. That. But I just wanted to say it's not twenty percent. I mean, not eight percent. It's twenty percent, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I mean, hundred and hundred and sixty percent. That's okay. correct. That's correct. It's a, this is a compounded annual rate of return. Yeah. Average so return. There, there, there's there's a few points there, Mir. Like one is that when they show it in this format, that doesn't mean that every year you get that same return that it's an average, right? So one year could be negative and one year could be super duper, right? You know, and that will offset that. So that's one. Uh, two is that when you look at REITs, right? Versus the rest, REIT pays a dividend. Okay, so as they generate cash flow, they, they rip cash and they give you a dividend, you know, which many people use it as a drip. So they put it back into the product as well. You know, um, so that's why that risk to reward is different than the rest of those, because none of most of those may or may not have that same kind of concept. Most successful REITs will go ahead and allow you to give a dividend. And um, there are REITs now for uh, storage units. There are REITs now for uh, residential apartments or apartment complexes, um, you know, there are a bunch of different types of products besides now just commercial real estate. Too. 
that's a good point, uh, Nick. These are this is total return, including the the, the payouts, the dividends, the distributions, um, and yes, that's why this volatility factor is very important. One year could be negative, as Nick said. The other could the other year could be a very big one on the positive side. Uh, where does the gold stay? Uh, gold fall here. Uh, gold is wasn't included in this uh, data series that Dalbert provided. I mean, this is coming from MSA, MFS funds. They didn't include it, so I could not include it. Uh, but um, you know, if you look at gold over the last over this period, ninety-six to two thousand fifteen, returns were pretty lousy. Okay, and it, it's. And it, it's it, uh, Say that again, Kaushik. Oh, oh, sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. The uh, if they've been pretty lousy, except for the period in uh, uh, you know 2008, 2009, when gold shot up uh, after the global financial crisis. But in general, commodities are do not keep pace with financial assets. They don't. Now there, there are there are periods when they do exceptionally well, exceptionally well, okay, and then you know the way the commodity markets work is supply comes in, prices go down, too much uh, capacity that has to be worked out for a very long period of time, and then uh, you know you guys are familiar with oil markets, right? So <laughs> that's exactly the phenomenon. Yes, Koshik. A quick thing, uh, do you have anything to say about those target date funds? Uh, yes, uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, target date funds are good funds for people who don't want to be actively engaged. Okay, Those people who uh, uh, want to just put money and not worry about reallocating money at the right time, as, as they reach their retirement date, these funds automatically do it for them, uh, which is a good thing because you do need to rebalance and reallocate periodically. Now, if you work with uh, an advisor, you can do that process yourself. Uh, I think that is a better way to, to do things. But if you don't work with an advisor, then these are really good. That's a really good option. Okay, thanks. Sure. So, also one more thing. Sorry on that. So, so, so if it is a near-term target date fund, is there a systematic process that they follow, or the process is more customized to the conditions out there in the market? So, if you have a target fund that is coming up, let's say, 2023, uh, do they have just a, a, you know, decided recipe that they use because it's coming up or they look at the the macro conditions, like you said, the, the interest rates going up and all that. Do you have any, you know, intel on how they operate? Um, for the most part, Sorry, for the most part, these uh, target date funds are, are, are uh, operating on a time scale. 
So regardless of market conditions, they will rebalance to synchronize with the retirement date that is approaching. All right. Now the managers have some latitude. They may take some, uh, you know, they may uh, take some discretion in terms of whether they want to sell more of uh, stocks this year versus next year. But for the most part, it is a it is a kind of an autopilot sort of a situation. If you if your target date fund is 2030 and your today is 2022, you've got to have certain allocation to bonds. That's that's just they they, they won't have that. You know the policy investment policy set for that fund will describe actually what what uh, allocations are generally speaking for each specific time period. Makes sense. Thank you, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Sure. Any other questions? I do a lot of work with crypto. Does anybody want to have a discussion about the basics of crypto? Is that of interest to anybody? If so, then I can definitely prepare that for some time in the future. I, 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 I do. May I am me too. Okay, great. Then I'll, I'll plan for that. Excellent. I didn't touch on a new Sorry, uh, Nick, go ahead. I, I, I was going to ask you what, you know, Many of us work for big companies and may have 401ks and things like that. And, you know, we kind of just put money in there and we may have allocated, uh, you know, uh, percentages to different funds that are in there. How often should you re review that and when, sh wh what's the right time to do that and what's the process you should follow for that? Excellent, excellent, excellent point, Nick. Excellent point. Um, 401ks, people just, make the allocation and then they don't really look at it for a very long time sometimes and it's uh it's really uh, um, really important that you review it periodically i would say if you work with an advisor uh, you should at least do it once a quarter you may not make the changes you may not make any changes all right but it it should at least be reviewed and if if there is no changes required, that's fine. That's okay. We, you know, but just to look at it once a quarter, at least, I think is, would be, would be really helpful. Uh, just to add on to that, um, we just had uh, an executive who apparently was looking at it pretty closely uh, with the interest rate and the pensions and stuff. And, this person actually got surprised himself that, and he put in his resignation in like two weeks and everybody was like so shocked. Uh, basically what his, his message was to everybody is the sooner you can, especially if you have retirement, if you want to retire as early as possible, um, review that as often as possible with the goal in mind. And that will definitely help you to retire sooner than later because most of the people make mistake of not reviewing that soon enough and, and just always think that they have to work until a certain age. And uh, after his announcement, a lot of people did that and we actually had a domino, people leaving 
because they realized for the right reason that, oh, now I can do it. <laughs> and the management didn't like it. Uh, so they actually came up with a bonus. If you let the management know in like six months in advance, you get 10 grand. And uh, it, it was really uh, a big thing about this one gentleman who was reviewing it. Uh, so I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an excellent point and, and we all should then donate us sooner uh, for that is what I understood from him. Well, I, I, I will say this though. I mean, you know, Nick, to, to not, you know, to your point, actually, it's just a review. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of making changes. Every, you know, if, if, if changes are not warranted, you shouldn't. It's, it's just a question of monitoring it. Uh, I mean, we don't want to get into the psyche of, you know, being too active on the 401k side, at least. Uh, when you're actively managing your portfolio, that's fine. But 401ks are more uh, longer term and uh, uh, hopefully the allocations reflect that kind of a, you know, long-term time frame that you don't have to make many changes. But there are certainly changes that, that are warranted. So that's why monitoring is important. I mean, for most of the people that are on this call, I mean, we all have time horizon, right? You know? Uh, whether it's for that or life insurance or, or what have you. And so, um, you know, if you're in your 40s, you at least have 20, 25 years plus, right? You know, so that should help you uh, weather the storm or average that out, right? True, but again, you know, drawdowns or, or you know, market moves are becoming so large these days um, that an opportunity to rebalance and, and, and take advantage can be really, really quite valuable. See, I, I showed you the chart of stocks, right, uh, on a long-term uptrend here like this. I mean, if you think this is the pattern that's going to hold over the next 40 years, then I think you're going to be fine regardless of you know what? What do you? Whatever comes your way. But my sense is we are entering a very dicey period uh, where you will need to be a lot more active than what people have been in the last forty years. Okay. Just one other thing to consider is the 401k each company offers have uh, limited options to pick from compared to if you work with some advisors, uh, advisors right? So it's uh, all about opportunity cost. Probably it will work out fine. You can put everything in there. Uh, like Kaushik is retiring next year, 2023. Uh, <laughs> for, for that part, you should be fine. But uh, if you have uh, um, other options, so all obviously explore that. It's the opportunity cost you may want to consider. Hey, thanks guys. I appreciate the time. Tim, back to you. Thanks. If anybody has any class they want to do themselves, it doesn't have to be about Jainism, or if it's something you think would add value to the group, I encourage you to do that. Or if it's something you want to learn, and if you commit to it, that means you'll learn about it, and then you'll teach us, then I encourage you to do that. 
Thank you so much for your time this week and extra special thanks to Parash. Just I have one question for the Parash. Yes, yeah. For four zero one, how many times we can switch the fund? I think the uh, I, I think you have. I mean, it depends on different plans, but usually it's ninety uh, days. Uh, you can switch around at least once in ninety day period. not more okay. okay but i i i'll have to check on that to be honest with you i'm not i'm not super clear on that okay so you said that you need to review the fund or review the 401 and if we review periodically then we need to switch accordingly right so not time is no not necessarily i just said you got to monitor it uh if you are working with an advisor then the advisors obviously going to tell you whether you need to rebalance or reallocate but if you're not working with an advisor then obviously you're going to have to make that call and uh, my recommendation is you should not be too active uh, because this is a long term portfolio but you know opportunities are there and you have to make that call yourself And as as Bhavin was saying, it's the opportunity cost. Thank you, thank you, Parish. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. First, thank thanks, you. Thanks, Parish. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you.